Hello, and welcome back to the Inquisitor podcast with me, Marcus Kauke. Today, I'm delighted to have as my guest, Gilad Friedman, who is the VP of International Channel Sales for the software company WalkMe. Gilad, would you mind giving us a 60-second introduction to your background and how you got here? So thank you very much, Marcus. It's a pleasure to be here. As you introduced, my name is Gilad. And in terms of introduction, I started my professional background in the mid-90s, so somewhere like 25 years. I've been always around business development, sales, direct sales, I mean, and mostly in channel. Always have been in international software companies around B2B. So channel sales, B2B, software companies, and lately for the last five years, software SaaS company. That's me. Excellent. Okay, so let's start with the million-dollar question. Why is channel sales so hard? Channel sales is hard for several reasons, but I'll give, let's say, the top ones that I think. First of all, it's indirect by definition. It means you take another entity, whether it's small, tiny, medium, big, large, very large, much larger than your company, and you have to direct them and get their attention to sell, resell, implement, renew, whatever you want them for your company with your product. That's number one. Number two is look internally. You have sometimes companies which <laughs> specialize in direct sales. Most of revenue is coming from direct sales. And now there, there are those external companies that carry responsibilities and revenues and implementation, quality, and satisfaction on your behalf, which is inherently a problem and a fight. So you're constantly fighting. You're constantly struggling. It's either internally or externally, but that's all the fun. Otherwise, I wouldn't be there. <laughs> so effectively, you have no direct control. Your currency are trust and influence. Your biggest obstacle probably is internal. And you also have to capture your partner's attention when they have a stable of products or they, and they're focused on their targets and their objectives, not yours. And you have to be relevant and you have to bring value to that relationship. Fair summary? Positive on all counts. Excellent. Okay. So tell me this, given how hard it is to be a a, a really productive, effective channel manager. Why is it that so often the channel is a place that you send Tim Nice but Dim to die at the end of their almost failed direct sales career? Or often they put greenhorn salespeople into the channel thinking, what harm can they do? What, why is that? I understand why that's a terrible decision on both counts, but why is it that that persists? Let me give you a, an example from my university days. They think that a guy that understands the subject or the topic at hand could be an amazing lecturer. <laughs> so they take top students and ask them to be lecturers or, or something for, for the newcomers. But it's totally two different skill sets. So companies... Going back to your original question, Marcus, think that if a guy was around sales, 
And it's, oh, he was a good sales or he has enough experience with sales. So when he has to deal with channels, it's the same thing, just with a middleman or something like that. So, hey, guys, why don't you practice? This is reason number one. And you, you can only already understand, Marcus, that it's a totally different skill set, number one. Absolutely. Number two is that how does the company deem the importance of channel? So many times when companies, especially like WalkMe when it started, or at least in the early days, where it developed and it thought about getting into channel, so they go out and test the waters. What does that mean? It doesn't mean there was an internal meeting. It was a strategic move. They thought about the implications and so on. They say, okay, let's minimize the investment, test out the waters, see if it works out. And if it does, let's invest more. So they send the green whores or the ones that you call <laughs> about to die or maybe use them nice, but then. Yeah. Sorry for not using the same term. <laughs> that is for me a mistake. Either you invest or you don't. Because with channels, I don't believe you can test out the waters with minimal investment. That's not the way it goes. So I hope that answers your question. Okay. So what makes a great channel manager? I think one very important thing is the one who always thinks what's in it for the partner. What's in it for them and what's in it for their company? Easy. I know. But the one who has in his behavior day to day, day in, day out, what's in it for the partner, what I can do for them, in addition to have amazing relationship and empathy and consideration and a hunter and revenue and everything, that's a differentiator, I think. And when, when I hire channel managers, I want the ones that also look at what's in it for the partner. Absolutely. And it's certainly when we wrote Making Channel Sales Work, the emphasis was on being partner-centric. So it's the win-win-win-or-no-deal mentality. And the best channel managers that we interviewed for the book and the ones that we've worked with who are driving 80 to 100% quarterly growth are the ones that spend 70% of their time in the, uh, the partner's business. They are coaching. They're training how to sell. They're midwifing deals. They're prospecting together. They're supporting them. They're helping them to keep the pipeline clean. Um, so early disqualification. And they're running around making sure that the partners are successful because the byproduct of that is they're successful in turn. But all too often, vendors come from that perpetual license, direct sales model. And what I see as a major problem is that leadership hasn't evolved. So let's talk about how leadership needs to modify its thinking if they're planning to go down the channel route. First and foremost, Marcus, I cannot emphasize enough, it's the time frame. Managers or management mostly take a direct model from time of hire till the time of, of getting full benefits of the hire, the ramp up period, and try to exercise the same calculations more or less when coming to channel. And again, I'm talking about B2B channel and not volume-based, enterprise-based software. 
I've never in my whole career seen anything done in less than a year. And if you ask me more practically and honestly, it's between 18 to 24 months. And management needs to understand it up front. If they don't have the patience, they don't have the budget, they don't have the resource, do not start. You're going to waste a whole lot of money, have a lot of frustration, and probably fire some people along the way. I would add one other thing, which is that if you're going international, not only do you have to have patience, but you also have to have cultural awareness and sensitivity to the different requirements. I, I interviewed Tobias Kopp, who is a general manager, uh, multiple general manager in the Dach region. And uh, the problem there is that British and American companies really don't understand the way that business is done in those regions. And uh, I've come across many organizations that struggle in Israel. They struggle in Asia for exactly the same reason. One of my pals, Zach Selch, he's built over a thousand distributorships in 135 countries over 30 years. And uh, he gave one example of uh, the founder saying, oh, my wife's Asian, Asian American, so we're going to put her in charge of Asia. Now, she's never been. Just because she comes from that uh, culture doesn't mean she understands how they do business. So you really have to put a lot of effort and time into planning and into testing and into speaking to partners to understand what they need and want um, and how they work. So please go on. So I want to comment, first of all, it's not just unique for channel, it's direct sales. Absolutely. And I say to people, first of all, it's the, not the United States of Europe, although <laughs> there's the EU, maybe the Brexit is, <laughs> has uh, fragmented that a bit, but Sometimes colleagues from America think that it's the United States of Europe and refer to APAC as a region. Well, of course, it's a region, but it's so fragmented. It means Japan is not China. It's not Korea. It's not Australia, New Zealand. It's not South. And even within Southeast Asia, it's so fragmented. So if, if, if it's, that is the case in direct, more so into channel and also I have to say, because we deal a lot with global SIs, like Accenture, Deloitte, even if it's an international global partner, dealing with Accenture US, dealing with Accenture Japan, dealing with Accenture Germany, it's totally different. Don't assume, like you said, Marcus, that international is a block or a region or a geo is a block. Understand the uniqueness of each region and even each country. So I... More than you express that. And to build on that, EMEA, Europe, Middle East, and Africa, do not try and treat them with one size fits all. I mean, even in America, the difference between, uh, between dealing with East and West Coast and North and South is significant. So you need to be culturally aware. And I think another quality that you have to look for in channel leadership and channel management is high emotional intelligence high empathy. And it, without that, you will get nowhere. So one of the things that partners get really pissed off with is the phone call that goes, hi, Gilad, it's Marcus. What do you got for me this month? Nothing great. I'll speak to you next month. And it's just an interruption. So again, another piece of choice advice that I would I stand by is that every point of contact must deliver value. Because 
if you're dealing with a reseller, they might have 12, 20, 30 different products. If you're dealing with a distributor, they might have 20,000 SKUs. Now, if you do not deliver value on every single point of contact, whether it's email, whether it's content, whether it's collateral, whether it's phone calls, whether it's meetings, accountability calls, pipeline reviews, midwifing deals, bringing leads to them, if you are not delivering value on every single touch, you are just noise and you have no right to blame them. The first rule of channel management is if your channel is not working, look in the mirror. I want to give you an example, Marcus. Please. Years ago, I was tasked with opening channel in a new region. One task, of course, was to get who will be the right partner and so on. Make a long story short, I got in contact, got the person that I want to talk to. And one of the things that, you know, always management or channel managers know that they should do is cadence. You need to have cadence with your partners. Absolutely. I said to, to my new contact, I'd like to have a weekly call. And he said, okay, uh, what do you want to do in this call? I said, just one thing. I want to understand how I can help you, what's bothering you, what's being delayed, and what do you need from me? That's all. And we started, and what do you think happened after a few months? I got the pipeline, I got the deals, I got everything. If, as I said, or we both said in the beginning, if it's about what's their value to me and to my company, it's going to be a short relationship. I can promise you because partners, at least in the beginning, do not trust you. doesn't matter who you are. So they'll bring you those breadcrumbs just to test you out. And if you do not provide value and if you do not show value in the journey, in the path, in the value, you will not get the big cakes. You will not get the real deals. You will not get anything. And if you want to see the scars on my back, not in this podcast, but I'm willing to show you. <laughs> Again, you've touched on the most important element of the channel management relationship with partners, which is that you have to earn trust. And that's the only way you get influence because you have no power. The only power you have, I mean, maybe if you're, I don't know, SAP or Oracle, you have some clout. But in all honesty, my experience of people, uh, when I've worked with MSPs who work with large vendors, often they despise those larger companies and the channel managers because they are selfish. They're totally self-centered and they're worried about their quotas. Um, now, you're not going to hit your quota uh, as a channel manager without a lot of friction unless you are willing to put the partner first. And what you have to do is you have to make sure that not only is there a regular cadence, so frequency, but also there are clear guidelines and genuine accountability, which means that partners help each other get better, which means that we have to be willing to confront what's not working. We have to be able to challenge each other, adult to adult. We take the criticism in the spirit it is intended, which is to help each other improve. And what we don't do is we don't spend time apportioning blame. What we do is we look to try and solve problems and get ahead of them. And without that planning, and this is another really important part of the process, you've got to plan with your partners. You have to do territory plans, you have to do account plans, you have to do growth plans, you have to do pursuit plans, you have to do pre-call plans, you have to rehearse together, 
Then you have to debrief together. Then you have to capture the lessons and feed that into your next pre-call plan. Uh, you have to engage with the partner so that they trust you enough to let you speak to the end customer. Because if you're just working through the third party, that says that you have a broken relationship. Marcus, if I may, a few comments. One, I don't want your viewers to get the, the wrong idea in terms of both you and I saying we should be empathetic and we should be this. It, let, let, let us not make a mistake. We're not saying to be soft. We're not saying yeah. to, to give away. You can be very firm. I have calls day in, day out with partners to align them because of some mistake. But being empathetic, being fair, and being partner-minded does not necessarily mean or does not mean at all to be soft. That's not, not what, at all. what we're saying. So this is comment number one. Regarding, uh, sorry, did you want to comment? Uh, well, to build on what you said, what you don't do is you don't operate from the drama triangle, which is victim, why me, this is so unfair, uh, persecutor, you piece of shit, you never do what you're meant to, and rescuer, oh, let me take over all of that, and, and then you end up becoming um, a blocker. Um, and you disempower. You need to operate from the winner's triangle. So you need to be vulnerable, which means that you're willing to take criticism and admit when you don't know, and also ask your partners for help. Secondly, you need to be nurturing and empathic, uh, which means that you need to recognize that they are under pressure. They have uh, lives. They're living human beings. Uh, they're not a, an organic ATM machine. Uh, you need to understand them, uh, and you need to listen to what they have to say. And you also need to be assertive. And so you can be vulnerably assertive. And it goes something like, Gilad, um, I'm confused about something. Maybe you can help me. When you told me that you were going to do this by this date, where did I misunderstand your commitment? So you don't have to be an asshole when you're challenging them. But what you do need to do is definitely challenge them. And that's about holding one another to account. Regular accountability reviews are critical. Yes. Sorry, go on. I'll touch the planning soon. But regarding what you just said, channel managers listening or, or viewing this podcast should understand, be ready to being bombarded by direct sales saying, those pieces of shit, they are going to screw us on the deal. I, they're doing this. You need to talk to them right now and do this. Getting you all hyped up, pumped up and... Take a step back, like you said, Marcus. Be Breathe. humble, listen, be calm, be cool, be assertive, listen to what happened, and then find your path. If you start screaming, if you get above yourself, it means you've lost. It means you, it, it channels not for you. Because this is what's going to happen. Most of the time, you find out that the reality is a bit different sometimes when you need to be assertive. And I think we talked about it. So again, I totally agree with you. And coming, you know, from the field, it's going to happen almost on a daily basis, if not more. Absolutely. Regarding planning, my important take on this, Marcus, is it's not going to happen with all the partners. Again, it, it depends a lot on the business. But many times in the B2B channel enterprise software, you will need to select and create a channel mix, which is more than you need. Because dynamics will 
will will give you partners dropping out sometimes they succeed more and 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 it's dynamic so we don't have enough capacity to do all this planning with everyone it's just too much but what i said the, the pareto rule the 80 20 rule many times apply so 20% of our partners will bring 80% of our revenue so with those 20% by all means plan be in go with talk to them and so on maybe the percentages are different but pick your selected partners well, uh, in making channel sales work, we made the point that what you do is you identify your special forces partners. And those are the ones that you invest 80% of your time in. There is another rule that goes beyond Pareto, which is basically 80-20ing the top and bottom 20%. It's called Price's Law. And Price's Law states that 50% of your production will come from the square root of the number of people in that organization. If you have 10 salespeople, three will produce 50%, seven will produce the other 50%. If you have 100 distributors, 10 will produce 50%, and 90 will produce the other 50%. If you have 10,000 resellers, 100 will produce 50%, and 9,900 will produce the other 50%. So there is a very strong argument to have a two-tier distribution model where your channel managers work directly with your special forces partners and you work through distribution to work with the rest. And you equip them with the resources and you train their managers on how they should work with their partners. Because out of them, you will start recruiting your next generation of special forces partners. But with a special forces partner, and my friend uh, Zach Seltz says this, the only way out of his network is in a box. <laughs> so what you really also need to understand is that you have to approach the channel with rigorous honesty, a total candor. And that means that you have to be ready to confront things that aren't working, but also you need to tell people when you cannot do stuff. So one of the other things that you've got to watch for is hiring people who say yes to everyone, because that is a major handicap. And I interviewed Michael Brody Waite, and one of the four masks he says that kill leaders' capability to perform is the inability to say no. And as a channel manager, your profile is actually closer to a general manager than it is to a sales manager, and a channel chief is closer to a chief executive than it is to the walk-in-the-park job of a VP of sales. <laughs> Walk in the park, okay. <laughs> well, by comparison to being a channel chief, it really is. I'll give the respect to our uh, <laughs> VP, EVP, and CROs, which do have- I am uh, a VP and a CRO. So yeah, but I get it. I, I mean, the channel yeah. is so much more complex. It's There's complex, so many more yes, 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 yes. Again, I always say, for those who love the nine to five job, do not get involved in channel, not as Absolutely. a manager, not as a, a manager of channel managers, and not even remotely close to that business. Far from nine to five, very dynamic, not complex, frustrating at times, but the reward is amazing. It's stunning. Absolutely. Okay, so let's have a look at Tell me a little bit about Walk Me, first of all, because I think this will be relevant for the next bit of the conversation. 
Okay, so in a nutshell, WalkMe is a digital adoption platform. Okay, enough with the slogans, what does it do? Imagine what GPS did for the navigation world. It allowed you to stop these stupid manual maps to open in the middle when you're driving and, it's not, and you're not interested. And it doesn't teach you how to navigate. It just gets you to your destination in the most efficient way, depending on how you configured it. Shortest route, shortest time, whatever. Think about the online world and what WalkMe does. And all of it is within the digital transformation space. So what is digital transformation? Companies are buying more digital tools in order to make their businesses more efficient and productive. Problem is that the applications that they're buying are getting, they're mature, great, but a lot of functionality being very rich and complex. So what happens at the end of the day, even if millions are spent to buy applications, the actual usage is relatively low, projects fail because they're not being used to their utmost potential. Put WalkMe on top of it, the user experience is much better, the usage is much more productive because the way that WalkMe engages with the user in various ways makes it very easy to complete a task or a process like GPS for navigation. That's my elevator speech. Excellent, okay, very interesting. So tell me this. I mean, you guys have been going through hypergrowth for the last three or four years. That's correct. Um, first of all, for any founders who are aspiring to achieve hypergrowth, what warnings would you give them in terms of preparation for that? Because the last thing you want to be doing is suddenly going on a thousand miles an hour and uh, the whole thing starts to fall apart. So what do they need to have in place before they achieve hypergrowth? I think a set of expectations. Aside, again, there is the channel perspective that I can elaborate maybe a bit more on. But again, as founders, you know, first of all, as founders, everybody says it's a stupid idea until people start investing in it. And when you start growing and growing, and when you identify that you caught onto something and then suddenly spiral into hyper growth, don't think that you can control everything. Things will spin out of control to some extent. Think about what are your three, four main pillars. Focus on them. Get your board of directors to support you and advise you on where you need to go. And follow and be agile enough to understand to make those small corrections. It's like when you're skiing and your legs start to be apart. In the first few seconds, it's very easy to correct. But when your legs go separated... <laughs> <laughs> Ask the hospitals what happened. Uh, by the way, same with channels. Again, uh, and, and if you want, you can cut me off, Marcus, but when we started to have hyper growth, it started, you know, when we said, okay, we needed to start to have channels. So the, the people who knocked on the door, the partners who knocked on the door, the people who could spell walk me, come in, come in. We thought it's all about volume. <laughs> yes, Exactly. Because we said, wait a second, if we get 30 partners in the door and just each one or at least 50% of them make such and such money, we will reach our targets. And then we found out that we were just spinning out of control, supporting 30 partners and seeing nothing. And eventually, just, just I'll end it with there and I'll, and I'll, of course, let you continue. At a certain point of time, when we started to do things right, you get the attentions of the big guns, the global SIs. And that's a completely 
different story. And I'll end it here. We'll explore that in a second. I want to build on your point. When you take on partners, make sure you have a good onboarding process. And that onboarding process is at least 30 days before you sign them up and then 120 days after. And you need to make sure they need to know what they need to know by when they need to know it, where they can find it, how you will measure one another, how you will hold each other to account, what standard is expected of them. In the 30 days beforehand, what you need to establish is how are they going to do business? So before you put in con contract and a ring on their finger, make sure that they are stepping up to the plate. Because very often what I've seen happen is that vendors will go out and they'll recruit 50 partners and they spend thousands and thousands of dollars recruiting these partners and then provisioning them on their PRM system if they have one. Then they spend time on product training, but they don't train them how to sell, really. They confuse product training with sales training, thinking that the products can already sell, but their partners can already sell. But the partners are often very technical. So they talk about technology. And that is like showing photos of your ugly children to strangers and wondering why they don't get excited. By the second photograph, they're thinking, when will this hell end? So you've got to make sure that your partners understand what are the outcomes that customers want? What are the gains that they're looking for? What are the pains that they're trying to move away from? How do you create an architecture that fits with the buyer's buying process and align your sales uh, system to fit with the way buyers buy. Another really important thing, and you touched on in, you know, people investing in your business. Well, I have a real bee in my bonnet about this, and I'm curious uh, your reaction, because I think most investors are the lieutenants of Satan. What they do is they drive businesses into the ground through the desire to get a quick win and get their money back. And as a result, they drive terrible management uh, behavior. So managers then encourage people to do fireside sales at the end of every sales period. So you basically steal from the next quarter's pipeline. You burn out your salespeople um, and you're constantly scrabbling around because you're constantly chasing quarterly revenue targets as opposed to playing the long game. And as a result, what you don't do is you don't build lifetime customers who are delighted, maximum utilization of your product, tell their friends, and then um, buy more and introduce you to other people within their own corporate family, within their supply chain, within the customer's customer. You also end up with a really bad sales culture because your salespeople are driven to being transactional instead of focusing on getting lifetime customers. And net result of that is you have high turnover, you have disengaged employees who are often a flight risk, and your top performers, because very often what I see is over-assignment of quota, we've got a 100 million target, so we assign 150 million to the sales team. Uh, we hit our number, but the people who made us successful are burnt out and pissed off because many of them didn't achieve the target that you set them. And as a result, they leave and you end up with this revolving door. So help me understand, why is it that founders are so obsessed with getting investment instead of building really well-structured, fundamentally strong businesses with highly engaged employees and customers for life? 
Well, you've mentioned so many points, Marcus. I, I, hard to understand where to start, but let me, let me attempt. And, and you know what? Let, let me give my own perspective. I don't want to speak on behalf of the entire world. You know, I am located in Tel Aviv, Israel. We are the startup nation. We have, I, want to, I want to come from a startup world. In investors and startups yes. and so on. I, I started at WalkMe around employee 100. Now we're about 817. We're hopefully going to be more than 1,000 uh, next year in terms of growth. So there's a lot of criticism in Israel many times, and I'm not speaking about WalkMe, lucky to, to be here, that uh, uh, founders are building companies to exit and to capitalize uh, you know, and live the comfortable life and then be serial investors and entrepreneurs or whatever. Yeah. So there's a totally, totally different dynamics to a company that's being built to being bought out in some way, shape or form, or uh, if you're building a company to last. So again, anything could happen at WalkMe, but I think that we're the latter of building to last. And I have to say, that it took a while, but I think both from management and investors' point of view at WalkMe, they get it. And it's now the channel world, or as we call it, the ecosystem of WalkMe, is now one of the five strategic pillars that we set for ourselves. It's not a subset of sales. It's not buried somewhere in slide 27 talking about channels where I totally agree with you, this is where investors don't give a damn or founders don't give a damn and you're more likely to fail. And all the other comments that you said, Marcus. But I, I also want to say, building, and I'm again coming back to the channel uh, perspective, building a channel, you said a lot of things that need to be there and should be there, it's true. But early on, channel managers need to understand that not everything's going to be there in day one. Hopefully, right. they see your podcasts. Hopefully, they read your books. Hopefully, they talk to other people in the same and investigate to understand what is their MVP in order to kick off channels and what can come next as they grow. I hope I answered your questions to some extent. And if not, you're more than welcome to beat me back. <laughs> In spite of my reputation, I shan't do that. Another area that I'd like to explore is sales <coughs> enablement. Mm, 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 because mm. you hear a lot about sales enablement, but I never hear about, I almost never hear about partner experience. And I've, uh, apart from my conversations with Rod Jefferson and your colleague, Avna Baruch, I've never heard about channel enablement. So talk to me about how you've been implementing that within WalkMe. Excellent question. First of all, what I did, and again, it took me time. I have to admit that in the beginning, I was very reactive, meaning, okay, I saw the need. I did something. I created something. I collaborated internally, did it, reacted. And, but after a while, I was lucky to have time to sit back a bit to say, okay, so number one, I mapped the enablement. And I said, everything that I expect my partners to do, they need to be enabled. Because a lot of the frustration coming internally 
to the partners, not from channel, but other business units, come many times by lack of enablement. So I can tell you at WalkMe, which I think is very similar to other SaaS companies or software companies, sales, pre-sales, delivery, and renewal. It all depends on what the partners are certified to do. Some are just this, some are, are a collection of things. So first of all, is to map what type of enablement you want. Then who are the stakeholders internally in WalkMe that are supposed to, you are not going to be able to do everything by yourself. You're not an expert in pre-sale. You're not an expert in delivery. You're not an expert in renewal. You have several functions within the company doing it. Now, again, in different companies, there might be an enablement group. There might not be an enablement group. So you map out, you find the stakeholders, you build a program, and the program needs to be elaborate because the partners, when they come to you and you discuss with them being a partner, they will ask you, what's your partner program? What's in it for me? How can I see money? And what's my enablement journey look like, looks like and what's my cost? And if you do not know how to answer it, you're in trouble. Once again, Marcus, remember the scars on my back? <laughs> I've been there. So I'm talking from a practical standpoint. For those who want to be more successful than me or quicker in success than me, map it out, what type of enablement, select or identify your stakeholders internally, build a program, and if you want, you can validate it also with your partners, that it makes sense for them. And again, different types of partner can have different types of enablement. But figure that out. Once again, hope I answered your... No, very much so. Okay. So, look, we're coming to the top of the hour. I don't want to overstay my welcome. <laughs> Tell me this. What are you struggling with? What are you wrestling with at the moment? I'll talk just... Uh, struggling is with the working hours and balance with uh, work-life uh, balance. But aside from that, it's uh, growth on scale. We have very, very, very ambitious growth objectives as a company. And as I said, channel is one of the strategic pillars. How to do that? People, process, tools. Do we keep the same people? Do we have the right people? Do we have the right processes? And do we have the right tools? So in a nutshell, Marcus, this is what keeps me awake quite a lot. It's interesting. Tell me this, how far ahead of your growth is your plan at the moment? Are you planning six months, a year, two years, three years, five years ahead? There is a three-year projection, but if I'll be honest, it's a years ahead. It's very elaborate. So for okay. 2021, I need to know exactly what I want to do and how I want to do it. Given the scale that you're growing at yeah, and given the uh, acceleration of growth that you're targeted with, mm -hmm. is a year really enough? I'll tell you that if you try to do elaborate planning more than a year, you're just fooling yourself. We are so dynamic. What is different about WalkMe than maybe others, although I don't like to say we are so unique, is that WalkMe created a new category. So since we've created, it creates a lot of different dynamics that were not anticipated. And therefore, having a, a detailed planning more than a year 
sometimes it's again we have a three-year projection so i do state where i want to be in three years time and i show in bulk first year second year and third year but the meticulous planning is mostly invested within the upcoming year and in terms of um planning the positions that you're going to need a year two years three years down the road how important is that because one of the things that i see many companies fall foul of when they achieve hyper growth is they start out with good intentions and they manage to recruit great people but then managers get tied up in the day-to-day doing and they stop um they see recruitment as an interruption to their day instead of being their number one uh, primary um uh, duty and so they don't build the bench and then they start having to compromise on recruitment. And uh, one of my uh, clients uh, used to uh, ask this question of people uh, within his team is, is he better than an empty chair? And if you compromise on recruitment, the answer to that sadly is often no. In fact, they're worse than an empty chair because when we talked about letting somebody go and they did, uh, in the next quarter, sales went up with no one on territory by 30%. So a bad hire is the most expensive mistake you will ever make. So talk to me about the planning in terms of designing the roles and building the bench. Okay. There's a lot of points here which I agree with you. Hiring is key. It's key. And you have to know what you're hiring for. Otherwise, you're bound to make mistakes. So number one, do your correct planning. Now, there are several factors here. First of all, are you looking at a strategic planning role or an executional, transactional role? It could be both. Hard, harder to find, by the way. But first of all, decide on what it is that you want to do. So execution and, as I said, or, or planning. Then what I strongly recommend to your viewers is understand whether you want to build or buy. And let me explain what I mean. When I say hire for build, it means you are hiring by default someone maybe less experienced, maybe cheaper, so to speak, and you think you have enough knowledge and capabilities and resource to build that person into the position. Usually, this is an execution role where you figure out the the people, process, and tools. You just need headcount in order to fulfill. It's a fulfillment role. Then you have buy, which means you're lacking the experience and you need to buy someone with that experience in order to teach the company how to get to the next step. That is someone usually more expensive because they're utilizing their past experience to do that. So once again, in order to summarize the hire, hiring is key, but based on planning. Plan if you need an execution transactional role or a strategic planner or both, then build versus buy, put that all into one soup and then put the right pieces into the right format. So I'd build on that slightly, which is when you're putting your plan together, it's really important that you identify what outcomes at each milestone you're going to need the, uh, the person in that role to deliver. And you need to start recruiting months in advance. 
probably 12 to 18 months beforehand. If you um, can. I'm going to challenge you on that. Okay. I think you have to make the time to do it. If Otherwise, what happens is you come unstuck by compromising, and you should never compromise on recruitment. There's a, a proverb in sales, which is better no breath than bad breath. Uh, within channel and within leadership and within management, it's even more pressing to make sure that you don't compromise on recruitment. So, Marcus, it's good that I disagree a bit here, especially coming from the startup world. Everything that you say, ideally, is great. I agree. I don't disagree with that. I just say the dynamics of a startup, you know, when they're short on money, especially in the beginning, seed A, seed B, whatever, you don't have that luxury to hire so much in advance. And second, second, they're saying your management or whoever's your colleague or your founders are going to say, we don't have this time for this bullshit planning. Results, results, come on, hire, execute, do. So you need to balance, hold off, do things. Reality sometimes is a bit different, especially in early stages of startups. That's and just I, my goal. I, I get what you're saying. Nonetheless, building the bench is different from hiring. The way I see things is salespeople have to prospect. That's their number one job. And managers have to build the bench. That's their number one job. So you're having conversations with people saying, Gilad, we haven't got a job at the moment, but we will in the next six to 12 months. So you start that recruitment process now, and then that shortens the notice period. Because if they've got a three-month notice period, it only takes you three months to fill the vacancy because you've got five or six people already lined up. You've done the interview process, and then it's a matter of, Gilad, we've got the job. Do you want to take it? Now, many of them won't be able to or won't want to because they're waiting on a big deal. They're waiting for a bonus payment. So the idea here and it does work in practice, but you have to put the discipline of daily search. So you need to reach out to people through LinkedIn. You need to have daily telephone conversations with people. You need to be interviewing constantly. And I look at companies like BMC, and that's how they used to do it. That's how they grew. And uh, parametric technology. Managers were actually measured. 25% of their time had to be on recruitment. And they grew, but back in the 90s, they grew like wildfire. Um, and they built a fantastically potent culture uh, precisely because, well, for one of the principal reasons was they had this recruitment mentality. So I get what you're saying, um, but that what this requires is for the, the manager, the channel chief, to say, you know, this is how I'm going to do things. And I understand the pressing needs for bringing revenue in, but you're going to, this is a 12 to 24 month process anyway. So if you're going to hire me, understand that we have to slow down to speed up and we've got to do the right things in the right way. What we're not going to do is rush because when you rush, you mess stuff and you screw it up. So I, I get where you're coming from, but I think this is a, a conversation that has to start from the, the new channel chief in the recruitment process before they hire, and then they need to set those expectations. And I understand how hard that is because you want the job. But when we started talking before we started the recording, we said that people need to understand that they're not alone in this struggle, that there's a lot of 
accumulated experience that they can access and they can reach out to people. So one of the bits of advice I would give to people who are looking to move into channel, and I do this with all of my graduate uh, level or um, mainly uh, millennial and noughties clients historically, to reach out to people whose history is your future and ask them to be your mentor. Mm. And the contract you have with them goes something like this. Gilad, I'm asking a huge favor. I want you to be my mentor. And what I'm going to commit to you is I will never take more than 20 minutes a month. Always come to you prepared with one question that I've tried at least three ways to fix myself. And then I'll be looking for your help and direction. And I promise that once we agree what action I will take, I will not only take it, and even if I fail, I will come back to you and tell you how I, uh, how I did. Now, you can do this with lots of people. And what's interesting is a number of people will willingly help you. Lots of people won't. So you've got to go out and you've got to hunt these people down. Sorry, go on. I want to say, in addition to mentorship, which I totally, totally back up, and I'm saying it recorded, right? So I'm, I'm, I'm willing to mentor and help anyone within boundaries of my, my available time, but also communities. In Absolutely. Israel, in God, Israel yeah. we established a channel manager's community, but you know, just from word to mouth. So companies like SimilarWeb, like Yotpo, like Monday.com, like WalkMe, we share experience. Why not? Guys, this is amazing. Can anyone join that community? Of course not. We're What's snobs. it called? <laughs> you stop. <laughs> What's it called? I don't know. I, I don't remember the name. You know, we're, we're on LinkedIn. So it, it's a group within LinkedIn. Right. But uh, it, it's because, you know, in the startup nation, we have loads of forums to help startups. And people here in Israel, the culture is ask for help, challenge. Why not? If I accumulated some experience, you know, and I'm not losing anything by helping you. Why should, and again, maybe it, it even elevates my status in terms of I am now a mentor or I, I can drag. So this is very popular in Israel. I would recommend for everyone to reach out, find local mentors and communities and, and whatever that can help them do their job, shorten the path. The path is not going to be easy. People understand, I hope, by our conversation, Marcus, the channel is not uh, an easy path. It's not all blooms and, and you know utopic worlds. They're going to have to work hard to get it done successfully, but there's a lot of things along the way and a lot of people along the way that can help them. If you're a chief revenue officer or you're hoping to become one, one uh, group that I would strongly recommend, and I found it incredibly powerful, is the Revenue Collective. There's uh, also, if you're in the UK, CSO UK, and these are groups that are peer groups. They help one another and very, very powerful. I'm also willing to mentor people. I'm not coaching anybody at the moment. I'm on a non-compete, so I've got no desire to take money from you. But if you're willing, if you're willing to put the time in, I will do whatever I can to help. And there are lots of people out there with experience who will help if you ask. But you have to be, have the courage to be vulnerable enough to accept you can't do it on your own. And we're all standing on the shoulders of giants. The giants that I'm standing on are a little bit crumpled because of the weight. You know, the, the reality is that there is 
a huge wealth of expertise, willing experience out there to help you. So for God's sake, get out there and ask for help. Gilad, we've come to the, the end of the interview. So a couple of questions. If you had a golden ticket and you could go back and advise the idiot Gilad, age 23, what advice would you give him that you know he would have probably ignored but would have benefited from greatly? Great question. I think dare, 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 dare. Don't be afraid to make mistakes. I was so afraid. You know, I wanted Absolutely. to please management. I wanted to do the right thing. Fuck it. I hope I can say yeah. that in your... Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. I say a lot worse. You learn more from mistakes than from things going wrong. You absolutely. have, again, you, you don't have to just do stupid stuff. You have to learn, but don't be afraid. Dare, dare, dare. The one who dares is the one who wins. Period. Maximize your risk. Risking is going from lower to higher value with the possibility that you will lose some or all of what you've got. Uh, you might lose some face. You might... Uh, take a backward step. But um, in all honesty, look back throughout your life. Have you ever learned anything really substantive and valuable from your victories? No, I haven't. What what I I have, I've learned loads from taking a bloody good kicking and from falling on my ass time and time again. So absolutely agree. Maximize your risk. Failure is almost never fatal. If you're on a patrol in Afghanistan, maybe there it is, okay? But no one's going to die if you fuck up a cold call. No one's going to die if you make uh, you botch up a sale, okay? But the key there is learn. Making the same mistake repeatedly without learning from it, that's just stupid. So keep a journal. Capture your lessons. A day without three good lessons is a day wasted in my book, okay? And write them down. Uh, The weakest ink is stronger than the strongest memory. Write this shit down. If you don't, you'll forget it. I've forgotten more than I've ever learned because I didn't write stuff down, okay? Uh, And make sure that you ask for bloody help and there is no shame in it. It's not a personality defect to admit that you don't know something or that you're struggling. And uh, also, frankly, if you don't ask for help, then you're probably a complete bastard at home. Because you take all of that misery home with you. Okay, um, Gilad, tell me, what, what would you advise people to watch, read, listen to? Because they're really powerful and practical in terms of their implementation. I think read in terms of either communities, blogs, books, or whatever media they want in order to help them in their path. I think it comes from a culture and people and attitude and behavior that I have never reached my goal of understanding, there's always something to learn. I love to learn. I love to learn something new. Doesn't matter what my age is and what is my experience. So this is what I would encourage people to do. And do you have any books or podcasts or videos that you would point people to? No, honestly, no. But I'll tell you what I'm following. I am following successful companies, software companies that I think WalkMe should aspire to. I look at how they built their channel. I read about testimonials. I read their public their publications because they're, they're public companies. And I try to mimic or to understand what I can do or what is similar to what we can do in, in terms of model, in terms of path, behavior, strategies. 
and implement it internally. So Fantastic far, it wasn't advice. that bad. Fantastic advice. Not something I'd thought of systematizing, but yeah, absolutely. Two companies I would urge everybody to pay attention to. One is a company called Corporate Visions, and their syntax, their structure on storytelling, and the research is brilliant around when you should talk about disruption, when you should talk about consolidation, what not to say at renewal, all of that kind of stuff. And the other guy that I would strongly recommend people follow is a guy called Simon Bowen. Um, and he does these amazing, simple mental models in order to be able to explain your value proposition in terms of the outcomes and the value that you're going to be able to deliver to your customers. So those are two that I would follow on the sales front. Marketing, I would definitely recommend Colin Shaw. Colin Shaw runs a company called Beyond Philosophy. His blog on LinkedIn is fantastic. And his podcast is to die for. I would also recommend two other marketing authors, Matthew Sweezy, who wrote The Context Marketing Revolution and Marketing Rebellion by Mark Schaefer. Both of those are about being contextually relevant and humanizing. And what they're also about is aligning, and we didn't touch on it today, which is my, my bad, is the alignment of marketing, lead generation, sales, customer success, channel, and account, uh, account growth teams. That is critical. So maybe on our next podcast, we should look at the alignment uh, question. Excellent. There was a thumbs up for those of you on audio. Oh, sorry. There's a two thumbs up now. <laughs> two thumbs up. Excellent. Gilad, how can people get hold of you? Well, very simply, gilad.f. It's G-I-L-A-D.F at walkme.com. That's me. Find me on LinkedIn. Find me in any other forum that you think. But LinkedIn, I think preferably you have my email now. And I promise to do my best. I usually, everyone that reaches out, if it makes sense and you're not trying to sell me some bullshit stuff, I promise to make an effort and try to reach out. Excellent. Gilad Friedman, thank you. Marcus, it's been a pleasure and thank you very much. My pleasure. So this is Marcus Kauke signing off once again from the Inquisitor podcast. If you found this conversation enlightening and practical, then please like, comment, share, and subscribe. And please go to Apple Podcast and give us a review on there. Uh, make it honest. If you hate it, by all means, say that. And if you want to get hold of me, then you can email me at marcus at laughs-last.com or via LinkedIn. In the meantime, stay safe and happy selling. Bye-bye.